of you that weren't here last week, um, we explained to the group that often in our sermon prep time, we're sitting out on the patio and just doing discussions, and we're going back and forth, and we're pressing in and playing devil's advocate a little bit to press in to get further clarity. And so we thought that during the series, we would do that with you all. So that's why we're both up here. And so I think it's good if we start, though, when we're talking about progressive Christianity is, and we realize, and we made a lot of statements last week, that there, are not, there aren't as many periods and statements within progressive Christianity. We hold things a little more looser. We hold them, but we hold them with open hands. And there's a lot of mystery in this, and there's a lot of trust, and there's a lot of humility. There's not a lot of need for certainty. We let go of that need, but we do find trust in all of this. And so I thought it would be good to start. I came across a a blog by Marcus Borg this week, and it was interesting, and I wonder if this would ring true for some of you. Before we get in specifically into shame and sin and estrangement, he asked this question. He said, imagine, go back to when you were 12 or so. If you grew up in Christianity, go back to the age of 12 or so, and think about if someone asked you the question, what is the heart of the Christian message? What is the good news of the Christian gospel? Why should you or anybody be a Christian? What impression then at that point had you absorbed? And he said, my answer at 12 would have been, Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven if we believe in him. And know what that emphasizes. That emphasizes the afterlife. That emphasizes that sin and forgiveness are the central dynamic then of the central of the Christian life. And then it emphasizes that the purpose of Jesus within that framework that most of us grew up in was that he died in our place to pay for our sins. And that's known as substitutionary or sometimes satisfaction atonement. And then there's this huge emphasis on believing that you have to believe in Jesus and that Christianity is the only way. And so I think that's important, again, for us to name how a lot of us grew up, because when we're talking about progressive Christianity, we're talking about a different framework. We're talking about a different lens. And so we went into the things last week. We were looking at the story of the prodigal and the story of Eden, and um, we talked about that there is sin there and that there's also shame there, and that when we do sin, that we feel this sense of estrangement with God, but that it does not represent a separation, which is what most of us were taught, though, that when we sin, um, that God cannot handle our sin, that God cannot stay with us. In fact, you pointed out last week that there's a faulty premise, and it's the assumption that God's holiness demands that God must be separate from us in our our sin and separate from us and our brokenness. And that's not actually what we believe. That's not what we believe. And I, I don't think it's what scripture actually teaches. Um, you know, the idea, anytime you put an adjective on the front of Christianity, all of us begin to squirm a little bit, but that's what we've been doing for 2000 years, whether it's Catholic Christianity, Reformed Christianity, Protestant Christianity, Baptist Christianity, our adjectives are important. As much as we try to dismiss them Um, they are incredibly important. And I I will say, when the adjective becomes a noun, it's problematic. But uh, we use adjectives in every form of life. We have modifiers. And the modifier is never as important as that which it modifies. The adjective's never as important as the noun. So I I don't know that anybody, whether it's Methodist Christianity, Baptist Christianity, um, you know, Presbyterian Christianity, I don't know anybody that's trying to change Christianity. Each of these groups, this is the effort of the body of Christ, and that is to capture the essence of Christianity. And so by progressive Christianity, this is just this adjective. We're not trying to identify with anybody. We're just trying to describe what we think is the noun. And I think that the story of sin, the story of man's relationship with God, is not a story. As I read the biblical story and as it continues to unfold, I don't think it's a story of sin and separation. I don't think it never, 
resonated fully with me that God's holiness is defined by God's inability to be with God's children when they're broken. There's nothing about that that resonates. It's actually counterintuitive, and it actually really is contradictory to Jesus saying, hey, you know how you love your children? The eternal Father in heaven loves you far more than that. And then I think about how we love our children. And I think, you know, is our holiness as a parent, our righteousness as a parent, measured by, you know, he is such a great parent when his kids are really messed up, he can't be around them. There's something about that that doesn't, in any way jive with what Jesus was saying. So we, we pick up this subject that we won't totally recover, but the, the idea of sin and separation versus shame and estrangement. Separation being technically, because of our sin, God separates from us. Estrangement, not being technical separation, but estrangement, alienation, is that sense that I am separated when I actually am not physically separated. People in physical contact can be psychologically, emotionally alienated and estranged. And so we went back into the biblical model last week and we looked at two stories. Our primal etiology, that story that we tell from the beginning of time that really is efforting to make sense of our present condition, Adam and Eve sinned and God didn't separate. Now there was a problem and they did sin actually. Sin being this transgression of the ideal. But the Bible describes the problem that they faced not as one of God pulling away. But the Bible says after they sinned, God still came, right? But when God came, they were doing what? They were hiding. So there was, there was a sense of separation, but it was psychological, spiritual separation caused by their shame. Remember, before they sinned, they were naked and not ashamed. They sinned and now they're ashamed, and so they hide from God. The sin and separation model would have changed the entire narrative. When God walked into the garden and said, hey, this whole deal is yours, but there are some things that you don't need to do. That particular tree, think about this, that particular tree, God said, don't eat of it. The sin and separation model would demand at that point that God says, don't eat of that tree, but if you do, I'm gone. Or worse, the one that I heard, in the day you eat of that tree, I'll kill you. Right? Did anybody, I know you didn't hear those words, but that, isn't that the way it tasted? In the day you eat of that tree, I'll kill you. Think about the difference between in the day you eat of that fruit, I'll kill you. In the day you eat of that fruit, I'll leave you. Think about the difference between in the day you eat of that fruit, you'll die. God does not set up the narrative that God is punishing for sin. God describes sin as its own punishment. As a matter of fact, the way the story really narrates, God is saying in the day you eat of that tree, you'll die and I'll be there with you. To the very end. The consequences are not the wrath of God. The consequences are the technical inherent nature of sin. Sin are those things that contradict human flourishing. Sin are those things that take us outside the realm of health and wholeness. And interestingly, 
And you can parse this a million ways metaphorically, and we're left to wrestle with those plausible options. But as I think about God saying, again, tone is everything. It's kind of like text messaging. I wish the Bible used emoticons so we could kind of get a feel for what some of these things were saying. But tone is everything. Did he say, in the day you eat of that tree, you're going to die? Or did he say, in the day you eat of that tree, you'll die? You'll die a thousand deaths. They didn't biologically die that day. But they did die. Two people that were naked and not ashamed, and they looked at one another, and death washed over them in their relationship. The lights went off and the clothes went on and the covers were pulled and all the ways that we have been dying in our bedrooms and our lives and our nakedness revealed by a simple story. And the day you eat of that, you'll die. And they go a-searching. Isolation. Addiction. Short of Knowing how to live as children, we learn methods of survival that damage us, and they finally entrench themselves in the wiring of our brains. And later we look back, and we have so damaged ourselves that all of us have experienced the pain of compulsivity and addiction, where we have damaged our bodies to the point that the gravitational pull is too strong. In the day you eat of that tree, in the day that you lend yourself to that unhealth, God said you'll die. But there was no sense that God said, I will kill you and I will separate from you. So I suppose, Mel, what I would say, and I'll pitch it back to you, I am not saying that that story is a story of sin versus shame. It's a story of sin and shame. I, I'm, do I believe in sin? My God, yes. I've lived in this body long enough and in this brain long enough. I know you don't have to read the paper very long of your own life to know that there are methods and ways of living unhealthily that are outside of the ideal and the plan of God for us. But Eden's story and the biblical story is not one of sin versus shame. It's one of separation versus estrangement. The, the question is not, is there such a thing as sin? My God, yes. The question is, what is it? What are its consequences? And how do we combat it? That's the bigger issue to me. But the Christian church seemingly grabbed on to the separation narrative. Well, the Christian church lives within a culture. The Christian church upheld slavery for 19th century because that was the zeitgeist. That was the worldview. There are some things that are so culturally entrenched in us. I mean, I believe that, again, when we, when we look at the narrative of history, human history shows a progressing humanity in almost every way. And the Christian church, when Paul says, I knew a man who went up into the third heavens, he's not speaking biblically from a Copernican framework of the universe. He's speaking from a Ptolemaian early framework of the universe that there was the first heavens, the second heavens, and the th third heavens beyond the constellations is where God lived. Well, we know that scientifically that's not even factual, but that was the worldview. When Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands, um, there was no women that rolled their eyes. That was the pervasive view of male-female relationships for millennia. But Paul's not anachronistic nor barbaric. He's cutting edge because he then said something that nobody had ever said. And he says, women submit to your husbands. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, same song, 
94,000th verse. And then he leaned in and he said, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And culture had never heard that. The story of any religion and the story of Christianity is always living into culture and pressing culture as the, capa- as the capacity of culture and humanity allows pressing culture toward the beloved community or the kingdom of God. So again, back to the early church. The early church is not archetype. The early church is infant. And so I personally want to say scapegoat, substitutionary atonement, sacrificial systems, penal substitutionary atonement, ransom theory. I don't look back at that part of our history and say, my God, what were we thinking? I look at a world that was completely sacrificial and say, well, of course, what a beautiful way in the first century to appropriate the gospel love of God. Paul looked at slavery culturally ingrained at a cellular level. And Paul didn't stand up and say, My God, what are we doing? Paul, within the confines of a Ptolemaean universe, within the confines of a slave-based economy for for thousands of years, Paul pressed by the Holy Spirit, pressed culture as far as it could go, and he said, slave owners, let your slaves go. No. Now, the Holy Spirit would get us there 14 to 19 centuries later, but he said, slave owners, treat your slaves as Christian brothers or sisters. Do you know what kind of progress that is? Do you know that's not enough progress? So when I look back and say, well, Christianity, I don't look back and say, my God, how have we gotten it wrong? I look back and say, appropriate. If my 10-year-old is doing what she did when she was four, bad. You want religious humility? Look at what radical Islam, radical Islam is doing right now. You know what we were doing when we were 1,300 years old? Because that's how old that religion is. You know what we were doing 700 years ago? You know what we were doing? Same thing. There's cultural progress, there's religious progress, and so I can look back and I don't look at Scripture and say, my God, what were they thinking? I mean, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and his epistle is one of the latest written epistles and he says, slaves, be submissive to your masters even if they beat you without cause. For to this you were called by Christ. Progress. Slope. So, yes, that has been what we said. But infant, not archetype, I have many things to tell you, he said, but you can't bear them now. Do you think they got it all born by the end of the first century? Church history doesn't indicate that. We have been progressive and growing. We are not progressing away from the text. We are progressing deeper into the text. That's all we're doing. And that's what every community, whether it's Baptist Christianity, Methodist Christianity, Church of Christ Christianity, all of us are trying to be faithful to dig back in because the hermeneutic is, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, Jesus was dealing with a text that was hundreds of years old. And he so angered the religious elite that they said, why are you trying to destroy the text? And Jesus said, I'm trying to save the text. I'm trying to read the text better. 
And it seems with the accumulation of wisdom and the unveiling of the Holy Spirit and the accumulation of tradition, it seems that we have a capacity to hear Jesus say, go back to the text and read it again, and we're reading it better. So that would be my response. Was that a long monologue? It, it was fair. It's, we I, need to hear it, so it's you okay. Keep, you keep teasing me. I'm going to shut down. I know. Okay. So, so what you're saying, though, implies a lot, and I, I want to touch on this, which I think we're going to get to in the next couple of weeks, because when we talk about the church being um, the infant, not the archetype, what I see, though, that is played out in Christianity, we have continued, though, to play out this theology in our prayers and in our songs and in our liturgy. And so in some ways, we're growing in one area, but yet we're not just saying, oh, we're honoring where the church was then. And so we're singing those statements, you know, from the first century. We've continued to sing the same things, maybe not presently here at Grace Point, but in most of the places that we grew up in. I'm sure we in, are. I'm sure we're doing well, things. Well, there's plenty that of things that I'm like, oh. Well, sometimes we sing that and I don't know if we really mean that. But, I mean, that's what we want to get to. We want to get to the point where across the board, this affects everything. Like, it affects the whole lens, not just the part. And so I want to get into worship and liturgy in a couple of weeks, and we're going to get into Jesus next week. But I want to go back to sin because yeah, the critique... The today. That's yeah, the, thing. the critique of most... Uh, some of your questions that came in and the critique of a lot of progressive Christianity and liberal Christianity is that we don't believe in sin or we do away with sin or it doesn't matter what people do, and we're not saying that at all. That is not true. Right. It's not even close to true. So that Lillian Boskell texted one of the questions. She said, maybe we should say what we aren't saying as well. And so that's what we are not saying that sin is out and no big deal, live your life. That's not who we are and that's not what we're saying as our definition of progressive Christianity. But when you say sin, I think the problem may come or the confusion may come because for most of us, we grew up with scripture that listed out what sin was. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were things that were detestable to God. You should not do these things. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And I know that some of that still rings true today, resonates with my heart and our hearts, but maybe not all of it. So at what point do we get to step away from the text and personally decide what's right for me and what's wrong for me? And What's right for me and what's wrong for me? I think we always have to be doing that within a framework of what's wrong for us and what's right for us. Um, to put only my eyes on something as major as the lines of demarcation between the healthy trees and the unhealthy trees, I don't trust my eyes that much. I do trust community. And I think one of the distinctives of progressive Christianity is a real respect for tradition. For me, the reason I call it progressive Christianity is because I believe Paul was a radical progressive and Jesus was a radical progressive, so I'm sustaining the tradition of Christianity. So we always are asking all of our theological questions within a more robust framework of what, has, what does the community of faith say. And I, I, I don't believe that all we need to do is individually follow our conscience exclusively. Do you guys know that your conscience can be misguided? Consciences, your conscience is not the voice of God. To me, your conscience is not the voice of God. My conscience is not the voice of God. My conscience and conscientiousness is my best attempt to discern the voice of God. I remember a time in my life when I thought how long my hair was could literally keep me away from God for eternity. Do you know how sincere I was in that conscientious conviction? Has anybody ever held a conscientious conviction that you deeply believed only to find out later, I don't think that expresses the heart of God. 
So to be able to do that within community, I, progressive to me does not mean going off on a, you know, on a tangent, a wild hair. If I were the only one saying these things, I would not trust them. But what I'm saying is a part of a movement that is bubbling up everywhere. Ministers every week are calling me. People are already... What we hear over and over again, beyond the questions with some consternation, what we hear over and over again, Chris, is people said, that's exactly what I've been feeling. I just hadn't put it in words yet. We hear that all the time. So how do we determine what sin is? It's interesting, as the early church was starting, God gave Peter that rooftop vision. And there was a sheet with all kinds of animals in it that the Levitical code, the religious life, I mean, their code of conviction that gave them their lines of demarcation clearly said these animals are unclean, and if you eat them, it's transgression. It's transgression of the moral um, and ritual code. And it's interesting to me that when Peter looked at those animals, God portending the inclusion of the Gentiles that they called dogs, God said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter's response was a biblical response. I can't eat those animals because Scripture forbids it. What did not happen is that God did not say, and this takes it up to, this annies the thing up, ratchet, ratchets it up even further. God didn't say, you read the text wrong and you're, you know, your zoological taxonomy is wrong and you've named the animals wrong. God didn't say it's a reread of Scripture that's needed and you've missed it scripturally. The animals in the net were biblically unclean and the only text they had, Steve, said you can't eat them. And now God said, eat them. And Peter said they're unclean. And God said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Wow. Now, how do we look at the biblical text then? When God is saying, here it was called unclean. Here it is called clean. That was the great wrestling match for the early church. <laughs> Progressive Christianity takes us back 2,000 years and says, what is the method by which we wrestle with this stuff? Well, just look at the book of Acts because they were chagrined. There were people who could not imagine that Christianity did not include mandatory circumcision, mandatory kosher eating, mandatory keeping of holy days. And Paul was saying, not now, because there was a time element involved. That's complex. It is so complex that it demands humility. And it demands that we know that what is sin, culturally what is sin. You know, I, I grew up, you have to wear a, you know, a certain level of clothes. And you know, I, still, I still remember you know, my mentor, T.F. Tenney, uh, we all went to Africa and, and we were going to pray for a woman one night. She was one of the matriarchs in the church. And when we walked in, she was topless. And it was... Well, I won't go into it. Um, <laughs> she was an older lady, and she was... Uh, uh, I won't go into it. Moving on. She was topless. <laughs> and I remember she cried out, Oh, the preacher is here to pray for me. 
go get a covering for mama. And the niece scrambled to get a covering. When the niece came back in, she covered herself and said she was ready for prayer. When we turned around, she had covered her head. <laughs> you know, what is, what is culturally driven? Do we really need to do what we did the first two centuries and go into places and demand, demand that, that our cultural norm is the universal ideal of what is sin, what is modesty? I mean, even modesty, the root word is mode. In mode, it, there is cultural implication. So what I'm saying is sin, the definition of sin, can't be as easy. Does anybody have children? You know it's not as easy as X plus Y equals Z. It's a much more full algorithm than that. It's like the quadratic formula with all of these moving parts. That scares some people because we're scared. Because people say all the time to me, but what if we get it wrong? See, there's the big question, and that gets into not just what is sin. The bigger question is what's the consequence of sin? Because you know the reason we got to get this right is if we don't, he'll leave us and he'll kill us. And he never said that. From the get-go, God did not say that. God said in the if God said in the day you do this, if in the day you break the law, you have so offended me, I'll kill you and I'll leave you. Yes. Let's sweat bullets over what is the tree and what's not the tree. But with that onus off, I have a little bit of more liberty under the mercy of God to look at the complexity of all of this. So, you know, what is clean, what is unclean? I think there are cultural variables. I think there are personal variables. Paul said in the Corinthian church, there were some Christians that had lived in the pagan culture so long that he said literally that they associate these meats that are sold in the butcher shop that's attached to the temple because it was kind of a horizontal monopoly. There was a temple, they sacrificed animals, and then the priest had a side job as butcher and they sold the meat to kind of uh, moonlight. And these people had lived there so long that now they were serving Jesus and they had left the pagan gods. And Paul said, when we, Jewish Christians, who never had those sensibilities and culture, when we eat that meat we bought at the butcher shop that came from an animal sacrifice to the foreign god, he said our conscience is clear. But our brothers and sisters from the Corinthian culture, when they eat it, it's sin to them. He didn't say it feels like sin to them. He said it's sin to them. And then he said, here's how complex sin is. He said, it's not sin for you, but it's sin for them. Because when they eat it, they feel like they're still worshiping those gods. And they still believed in those gods. That's a whole other thing. 1 Corinthians 6, they were Christians and they were polytheistic. They had not given up their belief in the other gods. They still believed in that. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a story. But he said, and then he, he stepped back and he said, so how can this be sin for them and not sin for you? Culture. It's from their culture. It's about their conscience. From your culture, you have no conscience on this matter. And then he gives this overarching definition. He said, you want a, another definition of sin? Whatsoever a person can't do in good conscience before God is sin to them. Ooh. Everybody's like, relativism. Yes. Whatsoever a person can't do in good conscience. King James said, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever a person can't do in good faith with God, it's sin to them. 
but it's not sin to us. And then Paul said, but we should not only pay attention to our conscience and not transgress it, we should refine our conscience and make sure that we're conscientiously convicted about the right things. So sin is relative to conscience. It's relative to culture. Um, but there are some things that obviously feel like absolutes. Yep. Yeah. Um, there, there are a bit, yes. And we recognize that anthropologically and historically that there are some things that every culture keeps taking off of the shelf, you know, taking it apart, dusting it off, looking at it, and we keep saying that, and, and when culture after culture after culture pervasively says that, we got to listen to that. Right. And I'm willing to listen to that. I don't want to do this individually. And, you know, people call me a liberal. Man, I'm the most boring liberal in the world theologically. I don't take advantage of anything. I'm like Johnny Carson said, I was so innocent, I used to go out behind the barn and do nothing. I don't take advantage. Of it. So this isn't me trying to be carnal. This is just... Um, but going back, so your definition of sin, and I heard Ian Crone say this before, that at the heart of all sin is forgetting who we are as the beloved. Yeah. And that's individualistic, though, obviously. So practically, your example that you just gave from Scripture, if we play that out maybe with something like drinking... So for some people, who they are is an addictive personality, and drinking would be the most sinful thing they could do. Yeah. And for others, it's not, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, it depends. So it's not culture-driven. It's not even conscientiously driven. It can be personally driven by your biological circumstances. Right. My friends who know that they are alcoholics, every time they dabble trying to be moderate. Again, you know how many friends we've all had? You know how many of us have tried to convince ourselves that this is not our proclivity and we can, we can be moderate? How's that working for you, we say in the 12-step world? That's a, that's the 12-step the, the world asks better questions about sin than the church does. We ask, how hot is hell going to be? They ask how that's working for you. And I, I know in my heart God's like, that's a better question. Yeah. That's a really better question. Listen to this definition or this quote by Duncan Littlefair, who was a theologian and minister. He said, sin is any act whatsoever that interferes with the creating of life, any act that interferes with love and the opening up of our individual family or corporate life, anything that interferes with the evolutionary process towards a greater, nobler, and more joyous humanity. Yeah. And I, if you really want the biblical narrative on that, the biblical narrative is that the that original sin, not the original sin that two human beings imposed upon us 6,000 years ago, but the original sin in every individual who have ever, ever lived, original sin is the struggle and the loss of our belovedness. Mm -hmm. Our great transgression and missing of the mark, if you will, from the very beginning has been losing the sense that we are loved trusting into that sense and living out the life of the beloved. I mean, that's the snake did not slither into the garden and say, listen, I know that you're going to die if you eat of that tree, but it'll be worth it. That tree is phenomenal. That's not what the serpent said. The serpent said, what did he tell you about that tree? Uh, he said that if we eat it, we'll die. What do you think? Well, he loves us. If God loves us, then we'll die. And the serpent says, Pfft. And he then goes on the attack about not how great. He never describes how great the tree is. 
He simply describes how bad God is. God's playing you. You're not going to die. The minute she said, God said, we'll die if we eat of that. God said, that tree's bad for us. The serpent said, no, it's not. The serpent said, God's a liar. If God's a liar, you can't trust God. And the whole narrative of Scripture is this narrative that is, the, I mean, the underlying story is always people wrestling to believe in their belovedness and in the love of God. God calls Abraham, and God says one thing. God says, will you trust me? And Abraham, over time, learns to trust God. And at the end of the story, the epistle of James looks back and says, you know what, here's the story of Abraham. Abraham trusted God. And Abraham was righteous because of that. And Abraham was called a friend of God. What's God want? Jesus said, I'll no longer call you slaves. I'll call you friend. Abraham trusted. Listen to what James says. It's really remarkable. James said he trusted God. It, it caused he and God to have a right relationship. And God called him my friend. Wow. And then we lived out of that and away from that, and so the Mosaic law came to sustain our immaturity. In the absence of an endoskeleton, you need an exoskeleton. In the absence of an immune system, you need isolation. That's all the Mosaic law was. Jesus came along later and said, I'm not a son of Moses, I'm a son of Abraham. Moses, Paul said, was just keeping us until we could mature into, you want progressive? We're going to mature, Paul said, into faith. Romans 5, the just shall live by faith. Oh, wait a minute. Habakkuk said that 700 years ago. Abraham said it before Moses ever lived. And before Abraham was there, Adam was wrestling with, can I trust you? Do you really call me beloved? And Jesus, Paul said, was not the second Moses or the second Abraham. He was the second Adam. The ultimate progress, T.S. Eliot said, is to take the long journey and come home again to the place where we began. That's what prodigals do. You don't move from child. We did not dedicate a child of the devil to make it a child of God. The journey of salvation is not a linear one from child of the devil to child of God. It's the long journey of the child of God to finally come home and be able to appropriate. And as we always say, the elder brother... Think about it. In the day you eat thereof, you'll die. Think about the prodigals dying. It wasn't biological death. It was the spiritual death of shame and estrangement. And when he comes home, the elder brother says, why are you celebrating? And the father describes it. He says, my son was dead. It's not biological death. It's not eternal judgment death. It's the death of shame and estrangement. And the elder's like, where has he been? The elder, you want to hear the church? The elder said, I'll tell you where he's been. He's been with prostitutes. Remember that in the story? He's been drunk, carousing with prostitutes because that's the way religious people think about sin. Religious people look and say, what are you doing that's real hairy and ugly and full of vitriol? What are you doing that'll get on the front page of the National Enquirer? That's such an immature view of sin. But that's what the religious elder brother said. This is what that boy was doing. He's out there. Nobody had said anything about prostitutes. He hadn't even talked to the younger brother yet. The elder brother said, I know what he was doing. You know why the elder brother knew that he had been with prostitutes? 
tells you a lot more about the elder brother than it does the younger brother. That's where the elder brother had been. So here's the church. He's been with prostitutes, drinking, carousing, all that while sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The father looks at it and say, says, no, he's been dead. He forgot who he was. Salvation is the divine gift of remembering. Salvation is the divine homecoming. And when the boy comes home, the father doesn't say, who are you? And the kid says, I'm somebody you forgot, and I would like to be a son here. No. The father runs to the boy and says, I know you. And the boy says, I don't know me. Make me a slave. And the father lifts up his face and says, are you kidding me? Kill a fatted calf. Get a ring. Get a robe. And the elder brother says, but he's been sinning. Yes, it's just what is your definition of sin and what are the consequences of sin? James says love covers a multitude of sin. And then the elder brother really describes what death is. You want to hear death? Death is the elder brother saying, and I've been here my whole life with you, sitting in this blankety-blank church doing everything. And you've never loved me the way you love him. And the father doesn't say, get away from me. The father weeps and says, oh boy, everything I've ever had is yours. Is salvation an intervening God giving you what has been withheld? Or is salvation you finally hearing that God has never withheld one thing? See, the story is not changing. We're reading it better. We're reading it better. And salvation is not becoming something I'm not. It's finally understanding who I am. And for prodigals who take dirty journeys, he has rings and robes. Because when you're sullied and stained by hog pens and maybe prostitution and drugs and all of the things at the top of our list, for him to put pretty clothes on me, <laughs> for him to not invite me to the party, but to throw the party in my name, oh, the healing that comes. And for the elder brother, for the father to say, boy, you're like that, pervert, that cliched story of the man who saved enough money in his life to take a cruise, and he didn't save enough money to pay for all the meals on the cruise, so he took Vienna sausages, potted meat and crackers, and ate it the whole way, only to get off of the cruise and realize that the food on the cruise was paid for in the price of the cruise. Was that separation or estrangement? He was not forbidden to eat on the cruise. He was estranged by his own false concept. Brothers and sisters, progressive Christianity is not moving away from Christianity. It is doing exactly what every form of Christianity has done before, doing its best, hopefully non-presumptuously. And if there is any sense of arrogance in our Baptist, Catholic, or progressive Christianity that we're better and further down the road than anybody else, then we're not nearly as far down the road as we thought.
Phariseeism is not conservative versus liberal. Phariseeism is an attitude that I'm right and you're stupid. And that is devastatingly immature. But that's what we're saying about sin. I know it. I lived it. I still do. I struggle. You do too. But at the heart of all of my struggles is this sense of am I beloved? And can I trust the creation? Can I trust that God has created creation in such a way that inherent in some actions is death? To hate, to murder, to be prejudiced, to not forgive, inherent in the nature of some human free will action is death. And God, I know it. And that death is a consequence. And people ask me all the time, they say, do you believe in sin? Yes, I'm saying that today. Do you believe in salvation? Yes. Matthew 1, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I don't think he's saving me from the wrath of God, but I do need saved from my sins in all kinds of ways. And when I watch his life and live that life, he saves me from my sins. They say, well, then are, you don't believe in eternal life and destiny? Yes, I do believe in the perpetuity of the human soul. I do believe biological death. You want to know what I believe? I don't believe biological death is the end. I believe life goes on beyond the grave. Do you believe in hell then becomes the next question. Yes, theoretically, I do. I have seen it. I have lived in it. Now, if you're asking me, do you believe in eternal conscious torment that the story of the universe is that the majority of humans who've ever lived simply because of the caprice of where they were born or their access to religion, that they are, no, I, I have no sense that God is ISIS and I have no sense that the nature of hell is that people will be tortured for trillions of years. I have no sense of that. I do have a sense that if you live in hell here and you live in that prodigalized journey and if you die biologically in that process, I don't, I, I can't conceive that Hitler takes 200,000 five-year-old and under lives and that he wakes up on the other side and God high-fives him and says, I'll forget about it. I think he'll take this hell right into the next life. But I don't think hell is a penal institution. I believe it is purgative and a correctional facility by which the soul of humans will continually be moving until... It is true that in the first Adam all have died, but in the second Adam all shall be made alive. So I am not, I, I, I really, I just, and I, I really, I, I appreciate all religious expressions, and Paul did too. Paul said there are people who've never known Abraham, Moses, or circumcision, and they are completely right with God. And he said, and it's sad that the people who had those privileges aren't. So I'm, I'm not a, I'm not just, Namsy Pamsy looking at life, then I'll forget it's all easy. No, this is, this is a soul-making universe, and this is a Christ-making process, and sin's a big piece of it. So I'm not wanting to throw away the terms. I do know that some of these terms are so freighted with baggage and pain for us that sometimes we feel a need to look for new terms. But if you use the old terms or you use the new terms, the more mature question is, what are the terms representing? And these terms are representing real matters in the human story. And as long as people walk into prayer meetings and kill people because of the color of their skin, we have no capacity, Brian, not to say we don't believe in sin and we don't believe in salvation and we don't believe in hell. I mean, how hot do you need hell to be 
sit in a prayer meeting where you're trying to talk to God and be killed because of the color of your skin. How hot do you need hell to be? What do you need hell to be? I don't know where that kid is, and I don't know how psychological illness plays into it all, but whatever that is, that's hell. And I do know that for me, Jesus has been saving me a long time, and even this morning, wrestling with my life and wrestling with trusting God. Okay. Okay, we gotta that's go. Enough. Let me give you three things. I hear you saying, <laughs> so good, it's a lot. I hear you saying, we are not punished for our sins by a vengeful God. That's we're punished, the only, we're, we're punished, punished by, by our sins. It's built into this process already, but that nothing will separate us from the love that is found in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul said. Yeah. So there's a great book. Um, Richard Rohr wrote a beautiful book called Everything Belongs, Nothing is Wasted. And it speaks to this very thing that, yes, we sin, yes, we fall, but that God in this economy of God, God can use that and grow us and mature us. So you should read that book. And maybe as our benediction, I want to read this just quick statement by Julian of Norwich, and we'll get out of here. She said this, if there is anywhere on earth that a lover of God is always kept safe, I know nothing of it, for it has not been shown to me, but this was shown that in both falling and in rising again, we are always kept in that same precious love.